We continue our series this morning on the tabernacle and what the tabernacle teaches us about worship. And this morning we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, perhaps uh, one of the, uh, well, it is the pivotal piece of furniture within the tabernacle. We're reading about it from Exodus chapter 25, if you want to turn in your Bibles there to that. Exodus 25, verse 10 and following. If you remember, uh, the reason that we're doing this series on the tabernacle is uh, this affirms one of the values, three values that we have here at the, the river. Service, uh, love given, relationships, love shared, and worship, love received. And we're talking about in the tabernacle, receiving God's love, and how the tabernacle teaches us more about not only how we receive God's love, but as you heard me speak about it last week, the rhythm of how the tabernacle brings us into God's presence to receive his love and how that rhythm of worship that God taught and showed his people in the Old Testament is something that we can learn a lot from as well in our own worship life with God. So that's why we're walking through the tabernacle affirming worship. And as we get ready to learn more about the ark this morning, let's pray for God's blessing and presence on our time. We praise you again, O God, for your word and the power it is to transform our hearts and our lives. We praise you for um, who we are as your people today. We think especially of uh, of mothers, and we pray that you um, continue to flourish motherhood uh, in our church, in our community, in our culture, that, Lord, it is something truly that is celebrated as good, a gift from you, We also pray for your healing and your redemption of those relationships uh, where motherhood is involved that have been broken and hurt um, or where there is a longing for motherhood not yet realized. We pray, oh God, your comfort, especially for those who are here this morning who are in that place. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you show them your presence and your love in a powerful way. Now as we gather around uh, the text of your word for us, Speaking of the ark, Lord, may we be mindful and understanding of what it means as your presence, your mercy seat, your place to offer and uh, give forgiveness to your people for their sin. May we learn, may we grow, may we be transformed through the power of your spirit and the work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things all in Christ's name, amen. Again, Exodus chapter 25, beginning at verse 10. If you remember, last week we talked about God speaking to Moses, telling him about the offerings, and then the conversation between Moses and God continues. Have them, the people of Israel, make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. 
Then put in the ark the testimony, which I will give give to you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherubim on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our present day culture, when we think of the Ark of the Covenant, and if you are older than 25 or 30 years old, it doesn't take you long to think of one of the movies that sort of set the standard of some things in our time, Indiana Jones and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Movie in the late 80s, early 90s, Harrison Ford, really, where he took a departure from Star Wars and got his own little thing going with Indiana Jones, and it became uh, actually a series of four movies, which has been sort of the gold standard of adventure movies, and in his case, an archaeologist who would travel the world and find these incredible lost relics of Christendom or of just, just power or whatever. Um, And in this first episode of the movie, he's looking for the lost Ark of the Covenant, what we're speaking of here. And he is, of course, competing against others because it's a movie, so it has to have drama and conflict and all those other sorts of things. And he's actually uh, in conflict with the Nazis of Germany. This is in the late mid-30s, and so he's, he's trying to get the Ark before the Nazis do. And if you remember in the final scene, the pivotal scene of the movie, the Nazis have won in the sense that they have the Ark. They've got it. And of course, because it's a movie and because you have to have the nice little ending the way that it's supposed to be, when they finally open the ark, they have Indiana Jones and his love interest present so that they can see what's going on and what they've lost. And if you remember that final scene, they're in this uh, out outdoor place and they take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it on this upper portion and they have all these people and cameras recording what's going to go on because when they open the Ark, then they're going to really see this powerful, powerful thing, right? And if you, if you remember the movie, you remember how it goes. It's actually pretty gross and disgusting, especially I think I watched it when I was about eight years old or ten years old or something like that. Faces melt because the power of God is too great. Like Moses couldn't be in the presence of God. These Nazis certainly couldn't be in the presence of God. And after they opened the ark and found just really sand inside it, the power of God is revealed. The clouds open up and lightning bolts go everywhere. And and really, the power of God is revealed. And of course, Indiana Jones and his love interest realize really quickly what's going on. And he says, don't look, don't look, don't look. He can't look at God. And so everything works out. And finally, Indiana Jones is the great victor because he's the only one left standing. But if you think about that scene and you think about what we've just read, Steven Spielberg, who is the director of the movie, got it completely wrong. Because the pivotal 
portion of the Ark of the Covenant really isn't what's inside. In some ways, we can think of the Ark of the Covenant in terms of what it is as a container as Tupperware for the commandments. Really, that's in essence what it is. The powerful portion, the, the place where power is centered, isn't inside the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's actually above the Ark of the Covenant, right between the outstretched wings of the angels. And so for us to look at truly what God is saying in what the Ark of the Covenant is and not be governed by the image that Hollywood or that anyone else might have for us, but instead seek out the meaning of the Ark in the text is important work for us to do because the Ark of the Covenant is central to the worship life of the Old Testament people. And so since it's central to them, it certainly has much to teach us about how we know God's presence and about how we worship him. And of course, as we think about and as we consider the Ark of the Covenant, this is a beautiful thing. God gave a design that truly was beautiful. Inlaid, uh, or inlaid with gold, acacia wood, and exotic, and a beautiful wood. You would have, uh, and if you see later on in the text, you find that there's a specific goldsmith, a specific jeweler that God wants to be a part of this work and does incredible work making this beautiful thing. And the cherubim above, are, I can just imagine, are ornate and, and beautiful. And, and all this stuff would look awesome. It would look awesome. But remember what the Ark of the Covenant is and what it isn't. The Ark of the Covenant is really a, a container for the testimony, the commandments of God, God's commandments for his people. It is not a container for God. It's not something that Moses would open up the covenant and say, okay, God, here you go. God goes in, he closes it up. It doesn't work that way because certainly God could not be contained. And certainly as God commanded what uh, Moses and the others to build the Ark of the Covenant, he made it clear it is simply, in essence, my footstool. This is where I sit down. Another name for the Ark of the Covenant actually is the mercy seat. Because what would happen is priests would come, one priest, the high priest, would come once a year, only once, the only time that the Ark would be touched. And would, after doing a ritual sacrifice at the altar, which is something that we will speak of later in the series, would take the blood from that altar as a, an offering for, for the forgiveness of sin, the atonement offering, and would come and sprinkle the blood upon the Ark of the Covenant. Truly, in essence, the way that God speaks of it, sprinkling the atonement blood at his feet. So the Ark of the Covenant, although beautiful by human standards, Ornate, incredible, one of perhaps one of the great works that humanity has ever done, not only in terms of what it looks like, but also what it is, is in essence a footstool for God and a place 
where God's people beg God, a holy God, for forgiveness. Place the blood of sacrifice at my feet, where I stand on my commands. Remember the testimony is within the ark. He stands on his commands and we sprinkle or the people of Israel would sprinkle their blood upon the place where the commands that they have broken are contained. And if you acknowledge that you've broken my commands, sprinkle the blood of atonement on the Ark of the Covenant, I will forgive. But remember, in the Old Testament, this was an annual activity. It needed to be renewed. It needed to be observed. It was a ritual that was observed because one offering didn't suffice for all. You had to continue to acknowledge, God, we've broken covenant with you. God, we've messed up. God, those, those commandments that you have in your Ark of the Covenant, the testimony that you've given to us, we have broken relationship with you through disobedience of that. And so we will come yet again acknowledging our guilt. Please forgive. God would say, I forgive. God would say, I forgive. That ritual necessary for forgiveness because it needed to be renewed. Now, for us, we don't have the ark. We don't have, our curtains here are decorative. They don't guard us from witnessing the presence of God that the ark of the covenant is supposed to be the throne of. We don't have that stuff. But, like the people of Israel, we can still be governed by our need for forgiveness. We can come... And say we be need we need forgiveness every time. That can be almost the rhythm that governs our relationship with God. We know, we acknowledge, we are broken and sinful people oftentimes. We know our own guilt. We know we can look back even in the last seven days since you've last been here. And you can think and name uh, those times when you have broken relationship with God. And when you come into the doors here or when you're in your quiet time with God. That is the primary governance oftentimes of that relationship is the guilt for a sin. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You feel that guilt before God because you know he's holy and you know that you constantly mess it up. And some of you come here and you don't know even what forgiveness means because you don't have a relationship with God. But you still feel that ache in your belly from knowing something isn't right. Something isn't, you, you don't do all the things that you want to do. And the things that you do want to do are the things that you don't do. Sound familiar? These are all things that can oftentimes, they can rule our relationship with God. We can feel unworthy before God. And that becomes our primary interaction with him. And it comes through guilt. And fear and often unworthiness. And those things dictate our relationship with God out of the, excuse me, out of the conviction of just how bad we are. We come from a tradition in this church called the Reformed tradition. The Reformed tradition has been around for a long time. 500 years almost. 
and one of the indictments that have been leveled against the Reformed tradition because of some of the things that we've said over the years, things like total depravity or we are totally depraved, is that we've thrown guilt onto a whole lot of people. Anyone been governed by guilt in their relationship with God and the church? Come on now. You know what I'm talking about. We feel that guilt. We're unworthy, God. You're holy. I'm not. And certainly that is true. And that is the case. But the problem is, especially as I think of our tradition in the Reformed faith, that has so overwhelmed so many followers of Jesus Christ that when they think about God, they can't even put a smile on their face. When they think about the creator of the universe, the one who has given them hope and life in Jesus Christ, they can't even have some joy because they feel that guilt and conviction so strongly. And I see that still in the world that we live in. I have people come into my office. And they say, I I just can't get it right. And every single day I mess it up and I'm broken and I'm sinful and I don't know how to fix it. And certainly that's fair. But I think if that's our primary interaction with God, we're missing something. In fact, we're missing a lot. And in order to help you understand that more, I'm going to refer to the great theologian Tom Selleck. Again, because I'm going to date myself, uh, and I watched more movies then than I do now, in the early 90s, there was a movie that came out called Mr. Baseball. Anyone seen Mr. Baseball? Oh boy, I'm in trouble here. It's a movie about Tom Selleck as a professional baseball player. He's been in the major leagues for a number of years, seen some success, but he's getting older. His swing is slower. He's not as good as he once was. And so Tom Selleck in the movie Mr. Baseball can't get a contract in the major leagues. So he gets an offer from a team in Japan to go play in Japan and play baseball for a team there. But again, he's older and he's not as good as he once was. It's basically a PR thing for the Japanese club to get people to come sit in the stands and see this American star. In fact, an American has been. And in the movie, if you see it, you you see Tom Selleck, the coach from the Japanese team, says to him, Tom, you're older, you have a hole in your swing. And he says this through a translator because he's in Japan. You have a hole in your swing. And Tom Selleck says, I've been playing baseball all my life. What do you mean I have a hole in my swing? My swing is just fine. And the coach finally convinces him, let's work on your swing a little bit. Let's work out and do some drills that can try to fix this hole in your swing. And, of course, Tom Selleck is like, whatever. But he's willing to do it just because he's not seeing success. And so he goes and he does soft toss. Soft toss is simply this drill where a, a hitter sits here and a person sits over there and tosses, little, or tosses balls in the air and the person hits them into this, this uh, whatever, whatever netting or whatever, and keeps on hitting and works on the swing over and over and over again. But the coach looks at Tom Selleck and says to him, because right now you are swinging in order to not miss the ball, we're going to work on your swing by doing some other stuff. So he starts throwing him 
marbles. Little marbles. Here's a marble. Here's a marble. Hit the marble. Tom Sox is sitting there. Swing, hit. Swing, hit. Looking at the marble. Swing, hit. Swing, miss. Oh, got to work harder. Swing, Oh, good. You've got marbles. Nice job. Now we're going to go up to balls that are a little bit bigger. So the ball's about this size. Swing, hit, swing, hit, swing, miss, swing, hit. Over and over again. Ritual, going through the patterns. And then finally, the coach says, oh, now you're doing well. We're going to move up to golf balls. And Tom Selleck, after hitting like 10 or 20 golf balls, finally says to the coach, stop it. I don't want to do any of this anymore. And the coach says to him, why? And he says, because I want to hit baseballs. And the coach stops for a moment. And he looks at him. And he says, that's what I've been looking for. Because so far in all our work, you have been swinging in order to not miss the baseball. And now... When you swing, you want to hit the baseball. And that's a key shift. In our walk with Jesus, many of us are living in order to not miss the Christian life. To not miss obedience. To not miss joy. Instead of living in order to live out the joy, to live out the obedience. We're living in order to not mess up. Instead of living in order to really live. That's the challenge that faces us as we understand what we have been offered in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. People in the text of the Old Testament were often living like us not to miss instead of living to really live. God does meet them. He meets the people at the ark and he does forgive their sin. But God didn't leave the people in that position of over and over going through the annual ritual of needing forgiveness of sin. He didn't leave them in that place. And of course, we know how the story goes. We know that thousands of years after the ark of the covenant was created, this beautiful throne, this beautiful mercy seat of God, that God did something amazing with a sacrifice that was sprinkled upon the ground of Golgotha that truly once and for all offered forgiveness for all sin. Mark 15 verse 38. Turn in your Bibles. If you get there, tell me. Put your hand up when you got it. Mark 15 verse 38. Who's got it? You got it? Yell it out, Ed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. What's the context for the story? Crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Christ dies, earthquake comes, temple curtain is torn in two. 
And God is in essence saying in Jesus, guess what? The Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant had been kept for centuries, is no longer necessary as a holy place. It's not just opening up God's presence and relationship with all of humanity. God is in essence saying, guess what? That place, which was a special place for so very long, necessary for the annual forgiveness of sins, is no longer needed. It doesn't have to be holy. The priest doesn't need to go there anymore. Why? Because you've got Jesus. And then when we look later on in Romans 3, 24 and 25, we see Paul speaking about Christ truly being the offering, the propitiation, the atonement, the forgiveness of sins once and for all, always, forever, never changing. Which means that the ritual of forgiveness, the annual ritual, no longer governs the people's relationship with God. Now there's something new. Now there's something new that governs the relationship. Now there's something that changes everything. Of course, for us, asking for forgiveness for sin is important and it's necessary in our relationship with God. But it's not our primary interaction with him. We don't come to the Holy of Holies. We don't come to the Ark of the Covenant annually. Sure, we offer to God our request for forgiveness, our confession of sin regularly in prayer, but that's not what primarily governs our relationship with him. Through the grace of Christ offered to us as a free gift, we are free from the burden of sin. And now we can live lives of freedom, joy, and gratitude. How many times have I said to you, are you sinners? And what do you say? If I say you are a sinner, who wants to put their hand up? Please don't. Because in Christ, certainly you have a sin issue. We have a sin problem. We have a sin addiction. All of those things are certainly true. But our primary identity now, through the blood and the grace of Jesus Christ, offered at the throne, the mercy seat of God, a perfect offering without sin or blemish for all. Now we are saints. That's our primary identity and saints don't live governed by their need for forgiveness because sin is not their primary identity. Saints have a holy identity, an identity of perfection, an identity of redemption, an identity of joy and life and hope which means that saints don't live out of a need for forgiveness of sin. Saints live out of a need to give gratitude and say thank you to God with every part of their lives. That's the new identity given to us in Christ. That's why they're never going to find the Ark of the Covenant. I think it's gone. I think it's melted down and one of you might be wearing it for a wedding ring right now. I think it's gone because we don't need that anymore. And if we don't need it, I think God would take it away and say, don't focus on it. Don't send Indiana Jones because there's nowhere to look. 
the place to look is the empty tomb of Jesus and give praise to God that that empty tomb governs a new identity in Christ so that we don't have to live life governed by sin. We can actually put smiles on our faces. We can actually live a life of joy. We can go out there and say, I want to hit the baseball. I want to hit the baseball by going out and proclaiming Jesus as Lord. I want to hit the baseball by going out of this place and serving others. I want to hit the baseball by being in close, loving, caring relationships of accountability and service with people around me. I want to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God because that's hitting the baseball. That's the new identity that we have. And that's what governs how it is that we live in this world. When we live in this forgiven identity, it frees us to live lives of joy, purpose, and abundance. And that gives God glory. And that's worship. In the second service, right about where Kimberly is sitting, there will be a gentleman with his family. His name is Sidney Johnson. Sidney Johnson um, came up to me about three weeks ago, and said, Pastor Scott, I'd like to have lunch with you. And um, I'd like to sit and talk with you about what it would mean to be baptized. I've never been baptized before, and I'd like to be baptized. And um, I love those conversations. Those give me joy and life, and I'm excited because that conversation has continued. Uh, very soon, I'm going to sit with Sydney and an elder, and we're going to talk a little bit more about his story. And in a few weeks, we're going to put the tank up here, and Sydney will be baptized, immersed in water, and shown through that wonderful symbol what new life in Christ is. This past week, um, I think it was Wednesday, it was Wednesday, uh, I met Sydney at Subway right by Corner Bakery, down in whatever that is, Citrus, not, not Citrus Plaza, Orange Plaza, or Lemon Plaza, or Lime Plaza, I don't remember them all after a while. We're sitting there, and I'm talking with Sydney, and Sydney has this crazy story. I mean, literally, it's one of those really, really horrible stories in many ways. There's been a lot of death in his family. He's had a brother that's died right about the same time that his father had died, and tough relationship with his dad, a number of other things. He'd been in gang life. He was involved in, in the rap and hip-hop culture, and so there was some yucky stuff from that that he was involved with. And, and if you ever want to hear his story, he's got something to share, and he says, I just want to share my story for the glory of God. We're sitting there. We're talking more about this story because I'm, I'm seeking in obedience to God to disciple Sidney and what faith is and what, who we as a church are and who God is making him in Jesus Christ. And he, he said something that I will never forget. See, I've, I've heard the, most of the story, probably at least surface-wise, I've heard most of the story, and there's a lot of junk from Sidney's history. But Sidney said to me, and he's given me permission to share that with you, he said, one of the amazing things about me growing in who God has made me in Jesus Christ is that all that junk, all that stuff from the past, the gangbanging, the drinking, the drugs, the guns, the stuff that was there, well, I don't want to go back to that ever. 
Not just because I don't like that life anymore, but because I want to see what God's going to do next with me. God's taken me from what was this crazy stuff to what is now where my family is looking at me with respect, where people in my workplace are looking at me and seeing something change where people that I used to run with know that I'm different now because I want to see if God's taken me here, what he's going to do next with me. And part of the reason that gives me such great joy is I look at a, a young man like Sidney. He's 30 years old. He's got a number of different, he's got a number of children. He's got a number of family members who are trying to figure out who Jesus is. And they are seeing Jesus in Sydney, I wonder, because this is a man who's living in gratitude and joy for what God took him out of, what God's going to do with him next. Sydney's looking for the baseball. Every time, looking for the baseball because I'm going to swing and I'm going to hit it because God's doing something with me. As you and I go out and live the life that God has given to us, is that how we see the world we live in? Do we see these things coming and say, I want to swing for the fence because God has done so much in me. If I swing and I hit it, I know he's going to use me to do something great. Or are we sitting there saying, uh-oh, here comes another one. I'd better not miss it. Because if I mess up, God's going to be displeased. For us to live constantly seeking to swing for the fence out of gratitude for Jesus, we may miss sometimes. But sometimes when we hit it, we might be incredibly surprised by what God does with us. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant anymore because we have the Son of God once and for all. Would you pray with me? Living hope, Jesus Christ, we praise you for new life that we know. We praise you that the Ark of the Covenant is not necessary in our relationship with, any, with you anymore. That instead you have offered us the offering of your son Jesus, a perfect once and for all offering that changes how we interact with you. We are no longer governed by our need for forgiveness because you offer it and you have for always. Instead, Lord, you call us to a life of gratitude, a life of thank yous, a life of taking swings for the fences, believing that you, the one who created all things and has redeemed all things, that you will empower us according to your plan and your purpose to change the world that we know, to proclaim your name as Lord, to live out the kingdom of God as we are obedient to you and as we say thank you with our lives. Empower us to that end in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.